Welcome back, friends. Lostgarf here, and it's time for the newest Kirby's Dreamcast. This podcast is dedicated to going over everything Kirby, and this time we're going over a game none of you have ever played. Kirby's Toy Box. As always, you can give us feedback on the YouTube version's comments section or at Kirby Dreamcast on Twitter. Also, don't forget that Kirby's Dreamcast now has its own channel on YouTube, so you can get only Kirby content instead of all our other projects if that's all you want. Now, it's been a while since our last episode. It's been a couple months. A lot of things have happened, unfortunately but we should be able to get back on track from this point going forward, hopefully. It will be a while until next episode, though, because it's a two-parter episode from the anime. It's going to be squished into one episode, so it's going to be an extra long one. It's going to be a big one, so it will be a little bit longer than normal, but eventually we'll get back in the swing of things. Now, we always give the news of current events in these podcasts, and the biggest news is, holy crap, we're finally getting an English-translated Kirby manga. Viz Comics is translating Kirby Manga Mania and will come out June 8th of 2021, and you can pre-order it right now on Amazon if you wish. I pre-ordered it immediately, because of course I did, because I'm hyped for that. Also, Dulce Box, they're doing another one from Banpresto. They're doing another Kirby figurine box, if you want to get on on that. There's another pre-order for that one, so you can do that as well. So since this is a gaming episode, I highly recommend the YouTube version, as it will have lots of gameplay footage of everything I talk about. And by the way, all gameplay I did to research the game will be on our side channel on Scarfplay. So you just search Scarfplays or Kirby's Toy Box, and you should find all of me playing these games. And they're an interesting group, this one. By the way, we're going to start ranking the Kirby games so people can yell their opinions at me. There's three basic lists. Ranking the spin-offs, ranking the mainline, and ranking all together. You only see ranking the spin-offs this time and the rest of the rankings in the future when we cover Kirby Superstar next, which will definitely be a big episode in the future. So as always, the gimme episodes are separate into chunks, but this time things will be a little different. The usual order is talking about how and everything about the game from production to sale and reviews, but this time it will be a little different because there is very little information about this game since it was Japan only and was on an obscure peripheral for the Super NES. So the order is going to be the status of house is the last game. So watch that episode if you don't know what's been going on since then. Background in the making of Kirby's Toy Box, which will include talking about the Satellaview, the story of the availability of the games and the game lost to time. The game itself in detail, it was a mini game collection set, so we'll still try to tell what little story there is to tell and rank the eight mini-games in order of worst to best. And lastly, my reflection on the game and where it ranks with all the other games we've covered so far. You'll notice I didn't mention credits. There are none. I looked everywhere across the internet and found no information, which is a shame as there is some potential and cuteness to these games, but no idea who did them, which is very unfortunate. So the year is 1996. Hal is still in debt to Nintendo. Satoru Wada is doing his best to run Hal, and Masahiro Sakurai is still deep in Kirby Superstar development. But he's made a lot of progress at this point. The only thing Hal is working on, really, at this point, is just Kirby games to survive. That's all that's happening at Hal. They all have other games in the future, but right now it's just Kirby, because they need to stay afloat. So we, before we talk about Kirby's Toy Box, or Kabi no Omo Chabaku, we need to talk about the Satellaview. It was Nintendo's first attempt at digital distribution. That's right, Nintendo tried to do this first. They're kind of like The Simpsons. They do everything first. They did motion controls before everyone else did a long time before we. It was a satellite modem peripheral that was made in 1995. You put the cartridge in the Super Famicom, the Japanese name for the Super Nintendo, and a big base under, which was a modem under the Super Famicom. And it would link up with a satellite connection to download games. A real satellite connection there. Depending on when you logged in was what games were available to download. The cartridge was one megabit. That's it. One megabit space for ROMs and 512 KB RAM. Not only could you download games, but also magazines and other broadcasts from the Japanese company Saint Giga. The Satellaview was a collab between Nintendo and Saint Giga, 
Just like how St. Giga was struggling to survive and Nintendo tried to rescue them by purchasing a stake in the company and doing this collab project. Evidently, the Satellaview did have quality games, but it had to compete with Sega Saturn and PlayStation. As for pricing, you had to buy or rent the Satellaview and pay monthly maintenance fees. The Satellaview had games from Squaresoft, Taito, Konami, Capcom, and Seta aside from Nintendo. Kirby's Toy Box would be Hal's contribution. At its peak, it had 100,000 subscribers by March of 1997. It had Fire Emblem, Dragon Quest, F-Zero, Harvest Moon, a Super Mario collection, exclusive Legend of Zelda games. Overall, it had 114 games. Unfortunately, the collab soured when St. Giga refused to go into a debt management plan that Nintendo came up with in 1998. St. Giga was $8.8 billion in debt, but rejected the plan. So Nintendo cut all ties with them and stopped making games for them or producing their hardware. The Satellaview was discontinued due to lack of support and fanbase in June 30th, 2000, with 46,000 active subscribers. In 2001, Syngiga declared bankruptcy and was merged into Wirebee Inc. And when it comes to the debt plan, I wonder if they got the idea from Hal when Hal went to debt. Iwata said he would pay back Nintendo a sixth of the debt each year until it was done in 1997, and I wonder if Nintendo, seeing the success of that, thought that St. Giga could do the same. Well, by this point, it wouldn't be successful yet, but it, they were on the way there. Hal was definitely making progress towards that goal. Nintendo would, of course, go on to make the Virtual Boy and Nintendo 64 around the time of Satellaview, by the way. So now back to Kirby's Toy Box. Hal was tasked with developing games for the Satellaview, and by this point, they had made a bunch of Kirby spin-offs. From what I could tell, they were either using the B-Team or using the Toy Box to train up some staff at Hal or they just had little ideas they wanted to try out. Most toy box games in art terms feel more like doodles than fully thought out ideas. Now, before we get to the game, there's one more thing I want to talk about, and that is the availability of the games and how you can get access to them today and how that came to be. At first, only three games were available as ROM data, and they were Baseball, Pinball, and Starbreak. You could use an emulator to play these ROMs. And then on November 8th, 2016, a ROM cartridge containing Kirby's Toy Box, Round and Round Ball, Kirby's Toy Box Cannonball, Kirby's Toy Box Arrange Ball, and Kirby's Toy Box Pachinko were sold in a Japanese auction for a total of 85,500 yen, or in American terms, $816.58. They were purchased by Frank Sifaldi and Matthew Callis of Video Game History Foundation, who have since preserved the games by dumping their ROMs online. It's thanks to them that we're able to play these games for research for the podcast. Now it's time to talk about the games themselves. There's no box, or game manual, or advertisements for Kirby's Toy Box to talk about. There are no credits either, sadly. All the information we have is from the games themselves. When you start any of the games, you get the game select screen for Kirby Superstar. This was a way of teasing that Sakurai's next game was coming out soon, which would be a month later on March 21st, 1996. After the screen is the main screen for whatever Toy Box game you're playing, the title screen says Kirby's Toy Box, followed by the name of the game, and then either press start to play or choosing whether you want to play one or two players, depending on the game. In the background is Kirby pointing out the title while looking at an open box, presumably the toy box. It's in the shape of a warp star. And by the way, the music and sound effects all come from Kirby's dream course. There's no original sounds or music except for one game in this entire thing. It's also claimed that toy box included Megaton Punch and Samurai Kirby from Superstar, but I've not found any proof of this. Just people saying it was in there. So we need to talk about the 8th game first. The missing game lost a time that we only know about based on images. It was called Ball Rally. And honestly, it looks fun to me. I'm sad I couldn't play it. In Ball Rally, the goal is to get Kirby through an obstacle course by timing when to press A to extend or retract platforms. 
Kirby's in ball form here, and so he just moves fast with the course. And he first goes through some tilted platforms over a spike trap, and then a pad that shoots him up to more tilted platforms over spikes, and a shoot that leads to spikes or the exit depending on when you press A. What makes this tricky is, eventually multiple Kirby's come out at once, and you have to juggle keeping as many alive as you can. Ultimately, a total of 50 Kirby's will go into this obstacle course before the game is over. This sounds like frantic fun. Also, whenever Kirby does hit the spikes, they become an angel and float away. This idea is later reused in Kirby's Mass Attack and Kirby Fighters, by the way. The Angel Kirby concept, not the obstacle course. I am now going to tell you about the games like it's a story, and the order of the games I tell you is the order from worst to best, in my opinion. So here's the story. After a rousing day of napping and eating and hanging out with friends, Kirby comes home to find a gift at his doorstep. It's a toy box! Kirby looks at all the little toys in there, and he can't wait to show it to everyone so they can play together tomorrow. Kirby grabs the toy box and hugs it as he sleeps. And that night, the toy box begins to glow. Deep in his dreams, Kirby finds himself outside a giant toy box. Wow! Kirby runs up to it and pops open the lid and jumps in. Now as Kirby falls, he feels himself split apart. Kind of like when he does his triple Kirby dance. But also not. Eventually, there's hundreds of Kirbys around him, and he's a little confused. He poyos at them, and they poyo back, and they'll rush at Kirby. After all the Kirbys hug Kirby, he develops a hive mind with themselves. They are Kirby. So the Kirby swarm now with one mind runs to the first game they see. That game they find is... Arrange Ball, pronounced Arrangeable in Japanese. It's a giant pin board game with a plunger to launch the Kirby's. A giant Mr. Frosty hangs onto the board to watch the Kirby's bounce around. So there's nine big holes with smaller Mr. Frosties in a 3x3 formation that the Kirby's see they want to land on to score big in this game. When they make it to the hole, a Mr. Frosty holds them up to show they have the hole. So the Kirby's do just that. One at a time, the Kirby's fire themselves out into the pinboard field, and they try to bounce in the big holes. The way to do it is using this plunger with how much strength they put into the plunger to fire them onto the board. Whenever one takes up a spot, that spot can't be filled anymore, of course, and whenever they do a straight line like a tic-tac-toe situation, they score big, and everyone cheers. Sometimes Mr. Frosty will fidget as he's hanging on the board. When this happens, if Kirby bounces into him, it will affect Kirby's trajectory. After many games, the Kirby score all nine holes in one game, and then the nine get eaten by the Mr. Frosties. The extra Kirby's beat up the Mr. Frosties to save their brothers, and then head off to the next game. So this game is a simple plunger game on a pin field. There was very little randomness in this game, by the way. If you hold A for the exact same amount of time every single time, it will go the exact same pattern every single time. There's no randomness to the bounces. The only random factor is Mr. Frosty and his movements. You actually must hit Mr. Frosty at specific moments with a specific amount of power to land some of the spots that you need for the nine holes. It's a very long and frustrating process to get all nine holes, and if you watch the gameplay footage of that, it took a while to get the nine holes for the footage for this podcast. So, uh, yeah, it's getting last place for that. So the swarm comes upon a giant Ifriti for their next game. This is a sub-boss from Kirby's Dream Land 2. He's all black and gray with orange feet. And that, by the way, is the last time we ever see that character in a game was Kirby's Dream Land 2 and this game. Ifriti explains to them that this is a precision game based on strength and timing called Gudugudubaru, or round and round ball. Three at a time, the Kirby's will launch themselves into him with the goal of landing at a specific spot inside of him to get points. Sounds really weird. There's also a multiplier that generates numbers as the game goes, and Kirby should try to land when it's as big as up to 50 times for big score. There's also chance at one-ups, by the way. The Kirby's blink at him in confusion and just shrug poyos at each other and hop in. <laughs> the Kirby's find that if they put in too much power, they end up at the innermost hole, which only gives 10 points. If they do it just right and get to the second innermost hole, they get 500 points. The outermost hole gives only 50 points, second outermost 
gets 100 points, and the exact middle, which is the hardest hole to hit, is only 200 points. After enough dizzying fun, the swarm waves at Afridi and leaves to the next game. So this is a weirdly put together game. It's way too complicated. There's just too much going on. But it's actually really easy to do it once you understand what you're doing. And it's very easy to actually time the A button to land at 500 points every single time. The trick, though, is getting the timer to go onto the 50 times points when you do it and when you get the one-ups. That's really the trick there, besides just getting timing there. And the game is fairly interesting, and it's very weird that 200-point hole is the hardest one to land. It's very hard to land. And it gives not that many points compared to the fourth closest, which gives the most. It's not a fun game, it's the second worst game. It's, it's sixth place on the list of seven games here. So the next game the Kirby's find themselves at is Kirby Pachinko, which is, well, a pachinko game. The Kirby see there's a big seat meant for them to be part of the game, so a bunch of Kirby's come together, become one big Kirby, and sit there. Then hundreds of Kirby's loaded in themselves into the machine, and the Kirby's find themselves bouncing around the pachinko game all over the place, hitting pins and landing on the big Kirby for big points, or in certain pockets on the field to get points. Over the course of two minutes, they are fired all over the place, and Kirby's watching observing, and then just flying everywhere. It gets hundreds of points. It's really dizzying fun for the Kirbys. And after they've had their fill, they just head off very dizzily. So that's the third worst game because it's just Pachinko and that's it. The Curb Swarm next hit a baseball field table. Some excitedly fill the stands while others take turns working the bat or being the ball for the game. The way the game works is that the table has pockets for the curveball to get hit into, and the outside pockets are foul balls, which makes sense. Then the next ones on the edge are base hits, then the next ones are two base hits, then outs, then a home runs, then three base hits, and the dead center is an out as well, like a pop-up kind of thing in baseball. The Kirby's cheer when they hit bases and they boo when they get outs. The Kirby's found little hats for them to put on when they sit on the base hoping for scores, by the way. And the Kirby's really get into it and form two teams to see which one scores better. After lots of fun, the Kirby Swarm moves on to the next game. So this is at the center list. This is the fourth best game. It's a baseball game, and it's okay. What's cool is you can play two players in it. So in single player, the game sends pitches your way at varying speeds so you can try to hit the ball, and there's a small wind-up sound to warn you the pitch is coming, but it doesn't help much, and you end up with lots and lots of bad hits. In two players, one player does the pitching, and they take turns pitching and batting. You can move placement of batter and how hard to pitch the ball and where to pitch with your controls, and that makes it ultimately an okay game. Next, the Curb Swarm finds themselves at a dirt field with hills and with big Rick-shaped mechs. Rick being the hamster from Kirby's second time out to save Dreamland, Kirby recognizes the Ricks and they run inside these machines and rampage all over the place. They eventually find the manual and see that the idea is to shoot curb balls at each other until a Rick breaks down. While shooting at each other, the terrain gets warped and destroyed by the shots of the curb balls, and it makes it harder for the Ricks to move around and aim at each other. After each battle, the Kirbys fix up the Rickmax and clean up the terrain, and after enough fun, the Swarm clean up and move on. Well, this is the third best game because it's the only other two-player game and it has some level strategy. There is a variety of levels to play in, and if you played Worms, you got terrain destruction you can do, which is kind of cool right there. What happens is it comes down to who can trap the other one first and then just start blasting the bits, because once you make the person stuck in that spot, you can just keep shooting them over and over and over again. It's got some variety to it, which makes it nice, but in the end, it's uh, not that great either, but at least it's an interesting idea. The Curve Swarm then arrive at a pinball table, and they go wild! It's been so long since their time in Pinball Land, and it has lots of things from Pinball Land to play with. There's a Mr. Frosty, King Dedede's hanging out, Waddle Dee's there, there's a Crack Tweet, Cracko's there, there's a bunch of Illeals, Cracko Jr.'s there as well, and a Bounder's there to hit as well. There's also the three Kirby's on the board to make the maximum tomato, and the side gutters give pumps to the other gutters, just like in Kirby's Pinball Land. 
The Kirbys happily hop in the cannon one by one to play, and the Kirbys find that they can, of course, rack up points as they hit things on the board, And but since it's not as expansive as the pinball land, it's just the one board, not three boards like before. Still, they happily bounce around and attack everything they can. The Kirbys find that hitting everything, of course, gives points, but hitting Cracktooth a couple times will make him hatch, just like in Pinball Land, and then Cracktooth just decides to leave. While hitting Mr. Frosty enough times drops his guard, and then Kirby can get a really good hit on him, instead of getting grabbed and thrown back. Then there's King Dedede. He, of course, laughs when Kirby loses, but King Dedede will sit there and take his lumps from Kirby for a while, too. And when Kirby hits him enough times, the King will really take a hit, and Kirby can even go back to the cannon to launch out some more. After enough fun, the Kirby Swarm moves on. So what makes Kirby Pinball good in this version is that it's actually a competently made pinball machine. It's not very big, it's very limited, but it's still a fun little game you can play, but it still of course uses recycled sounds from Kirby's Dream Course, so that's too bad. It's second place because you could have a lot of fun playing it over a lot of the other games. The Curb Swarm then finds themselves at the final game. They look up at the sky, and they hear soft music. They've been playing a lot of games, so the Kirby Pile gathers in a pile and sleeps on a blanket as one. As they sleep, they form into one Kirby again and wake up to find Rick and Rick. They in unison say, good day, mate. Want to play some games? And so Kirby piles happily and they throw Kirby into the air. It turns out it's a game. As Kirby flies into the sky, he hits the stars in the sky and breaks them into dust. And the Ricks try to catch him. Over and over, they break lots and lots of stars and Kirby has so much fun in all the stages. The Ricks do drop Kirby a couple times, but they do get him back up into the air right away when they can but then King Dedede comes in from the sky and attacks. He throws hammers at the Ricks and Kirby, but they fight back and eventually knock him out of the sky. Good job! So Starbreak, or Hoshi Kozushi, gets number one because it's the only game with original music and sound effects. It's not exactly a breakaway game like Block Ball, but it's an interesting idea. So you're bouncing Kirby around like Block Ball, sort of, where you're shooting back in the air, but gravity pulls him back down. And so you're not just staying up in the air for a long time if you get a good hit like you would in a breakaway kind of game. With gravity, you get Kirby over a bunch of stars and he'll fall down and just destroy a ton of stars on the way back down. That's pretty cool. But it does have the failing of a breakaway game where there are some slow lulls in the game and that could make you a bit, you know, not as interested. But the nice thing is this game has stages, which no other game has, and it has a boss fight, which no other game has. I wish this much attention went into the other games, then the toy box could have been really good. And I wish I knew the credits for this game, because I'd like to know what they did after this, because there is actually some potential with this game. They did something that was actually worth playing out of the toy box compared to everything else. So after defeating King Dedede and destroying all the stars in the sky, Kirby comes falling down from the sky, and he floats slowly down and back into his bed. Kirby wakes up with the toy box still in his arms. He opens it up, and things look a little different and moved around. Kirby poils curiously, and then there's a knock at the door. It's Bandana D and his friends! Kirby goes outside with the toy box in his hands. The end. So Kirby's toy box was this weird niche concept that very few people played, and that's mostly okay. But you can download them online if you want, and see if you like the games more or less than I did. It should be no surprise that Kirby's toy box is last place on the spin-offs list and overall games list, and will stay there forever as far as I know. Now let's do the rankings for the spin-off games before we finish this podcast. Last place is Kirby's Toy Box, then it's Kirby's Block Ball, then Avalanche, Pinball Land, and number one is Kirby's Dream Course for sure. Kirby's Dream Course is a really hard game that is simple and cute, and you can finish it at the same time, but 100% takes a lot of work. It's got a good, simple skill floor, and its skill ceiling is pretty high. That's the best way to put it. Kirby's Toy Box was an interesting thing at an interesting time with an interesting console. 
the Satellaview is just quite the concept. It's like, you downloaded games from a satellite. This is a concept way ahead of its time. A streaming concept way ahead of its time. The next time this gets tried out is going to be, I believe, Sega Channel with Sega. And then it won't be in a, again until well, we have where we are now with stores and streaming and things like that. Nintendo was way ahead of its time. And they did it while they were trying to save another company from debt. Isn't that something? Again, the games weren't that great. It's nice little distractions. There were better games than Satellaview for sure. You had A Legend of Zelda. You had RPGs you could play. That's pretty cool. But I'm glad this con- this exists, this little niche thing, where you got to see, probably this is kind of like tryouts with Howard. They're just showing what they can do there within the company. I'm really interested to know what was the story going on there. I'll never know the story, maybe, unless I can get into contact with people in the future. But this happened over 20 years ago. Some of the stuff are still around today and may still be around in the future. And if we get big enough with this podcast where we could talk to some of these people, that'd be really good to know what was going on with that. But Nintendo and how, because they're in Japan, are very secretive about their things, so who knows what I could actually learn. Hopes for the future, though. So that right there is the podcast. Hope you enjoyed learning about Kirby's Toy Box. As always, if you have feedback, let us know on Twitter or on the YouTube version. You can find the podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. Mine is Stitcher, that's the only place I can't get it on. So next episode, we'll cover episodes 41 and 42 of Kirby Right Back At Ya. It's a two-parter, so it's going to be a while. Tell people about us. We're the only Kirby podcast to let Kirby fans know. And uh, I had fun. I hope you had fun listening and watching if you're watching the YouTube version. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Having fun. Thanks for coming by and see you next time. <laughs>